You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you, people, I've been I've been visiting, revisiting guests, and it's great because we do it on Zoom. And a lot of these people I saw in the studio, and my guest today was on five years ago, and he's one of those guys. He's always working. And he was so fun to talk to. And we're going to get into his whole relationship with Elvis Costello. Because if you haven't heard that, it's a great story. And my guest is Willie Garson. How are you doing, Willie? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Good. I, I got to ask you. You know, you're a guy who's always working, a working actor. What is it Not like? Not today. To, Not you, today, my friend. I know, Not what today. Is, what is it like for you right now? What, what, what's what been going on since it's when it started until now? You know, it it's hard, but it's... um. It's, I look at it as a moment of growth in that it really, this is teaching us that uh, you have to make sure you live your life uh, outside of your work because a lot of us just go, are working all the time. Um, and without it, I've, I've had a lot of friends who are just like crumbling. Uh, certainly uh, directors, hour-long television directors who are used to not being home like ever because uh, they direct on location you know it's a it's a week of prep uh, two weeks of shooting and then a couple days of post so it's basically a month to do an episode if you're a director um, and it's been uh, for some of them you know who do six seven eight episodes a year of hour long they haven't been home this long in 20 years um, and they're literally jumping out of their skin. So I, I, I'm, I'm okay, and I go under the guise of trying to work uh, every day, but, you know, there's nothing any of us can do. It's just, you know, like like many people, we're just at home. Now, do you, are you sitting there, I mean, are you thinking about the future? Like, when's this going to start again? I know certain productions <laughs> have started, but do you sit there and does it, do you get a little anxiety-ridden just because you're like, holy crap, man, I'm... I'm not used to being home. I'd say I'd say a little anxiety is an understatement, and uh, the uh, you know th- yeah things are starting ish, but it's also tentative and scary, and you know that it has to be done right, and it has to be done right for everyone, um, everyone on a crew, everyone there, uh, and also for the entertainment value. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's going to be made during pandemic that we won't want to see again. Um, so like, for example, and I think they're doing it in a fun way, hopefully. Um, I do a game show called 25 words or less. And we did it last season and they're starting up. They started this week and uh, I go next week to do a few days and I'm incredibly grateful for the job. And, but I don't know what it's going to look like. And that, that show syndicates very well. I don't know if these episodes are going to be things that people are going to want to see for generations to come. <laughs> like, um, so, anyway. Have you been someone who's been going out at all? Like, for me, tomorrow is my wife's birthday. And we're going out to... Happy sit- birthday! Oh, I'll tell her. We're going to sit in a restaurant, and it's the first time I've been into a restaurant besides getting takeout since yeah. March 15th. And I'm sitting there... I'm going, well, wait a second, it's outdoors. But have you been going out? Have you been hitting L.A.? Or what have you been doing? No, no, no. No, not at all. And people have. I mean, I, you know, I go out. I live my life in terms of I have to go to the store. I do that once a week. I do my, my food shopping once a week. If I have to go to the post office, I go to the post office. You know, I wear a mask. It's not like a big deal. We're learning. We're definitely learning how to navigate this. Whereas at the beginning, everything was so new, like, oh, my God, I have to scrub my clothes down. I have, you know, like, um, and the more we learn, it's just wear a mask, be intelligent, uh, don't be crowded inside with people, especially if they're not wearing masks. Um, so so uh, it's funny you say that because, like, yesterday, it's been a couple, but yesterday was one of the first times that I went out to lunch. Uh, at a restaurant with a friend and we sat across the table from each other and it was outside in a patio and it was it was fine um, my problem with going out and this is just my theory 
is that when I'm out, I actually get more depressed because it's a constant reminder of how it's not. <laughs> like, that's really what it is. It's a constant reminder of like, oh, this is not. Uh, and I want to get back to my house where I can take my mask off, uh, take my clothes off, do whatever I want. No one's here. It's, and I'm fine. I'm safe and healthy here. You know. Now, now, what has happened to your legendary poker night? I mean, weren't, you're, weren't, did you just have big poker games? People, people who play poker have never played more poker in their life than right now. So I, I have a game Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I have poker games. Are they are they live or are they Zoom? Or? No, no, it's all Zoom. It's a, or some aren't even on Zoom; they're just on poker sites. And uh, um, but we play a lot of poker. Poker players are playing a lot of poker. It's a it's a perfect way to pass time. <laughs> now, when did you get into poker? We you know you've been acting. Was it was it hand in hand when you sat there? What is it? Uh, Steve Steve is the worst. He's it's like he's never done a podcast before. I know. I can't believe my phone's always low. I know. My father, my father was a semi-professional gambler. So we, I played poker my whole life. Like we didn't, as a family, uh, we didn't play Monopoly. We played poker and blackjack. So I've always played poker. And then in high school and middle school, even my friends and I would have a big night would be a poker night. Um, and then when I got to be an adult, uh, I've always been in a game. Uh, right, right now, I'm in four games, but but normally I'm always in a game that meets once a week. <laughs> so, you said your dad was a semi-pro poker player. You used to play growing up as a kid. What made you get into acting? Was it just your household uh, was just fun, or what made you come into an actor? You know, uh, I don't want to say I fell into it because I was really into it. I did a I did a play like in first grade and I was so into it. I loved it. I did it in second grade. They brought me back to play Rumpelstiltskin again. I was that good, but really it was a very small town and they didn't want to make a kid try and learn the lines again. Um, and then in uh, middle school, there was a woman at my middle school in New Jersey uh, who lived in Manhattan. And she said, she saw me in the school play uh, one of my teachers, and she said, I have a friend in New York uh, who's an agent, and you should go talk to her. And I went and talked to her. I was 13, and she said, I have a friend who's your age, who's a great actor, and he's a professional actor, and you two should be friends. And uh, that was Fisher Stevens, who's an actor, and we became friends. And his mother had an acting school, and I would go in every weekend and go to acting classes. And then I got a play uh, off-Broadway at the Roundabout um, called The Winslow Boy, which sounds fancy. I played The Winslow Boy, which sounds fancy, but The Winslow Boy has about four lines and is asleep on the couch the entire play. Um, so I was very good at that. And uh, and there, I think there were three or four of us that they rotated the kids because it really did um, so then I was an actor, and I, but I went to uh, I went to college not thinking I was going to be a professional actor for the rest of my life. I thought I would try I would try uh, law. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. So you went you went pre law, pre law. It, uh, it's called Wesleyan in Connecticut. You don't have to declare your major till uh, the beginning of junior year after your second year. And so I was thinking that I would probably be a lawyer. Because uh, who really makes a living as an actor? Um, and so it wasn't until literally end of sophomore year, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try and do this for a little bit and see what happens. And uh, I also found out, and this is, I mean, I'm such a businessman. Um, I, I also found out that I had a lot of credits from uh, uh, AP, advanced placement classes in high school. That I had so many credits that I that I was already a half a semester, a half a year ahead. I was a semester ahead. So 
at the end of sophomore year, I figured out if I took two extra classes first semester and two extra classes second semester, I could graduate a year early. And I went and talked to my father. Wesleyan was very expensive. And I went and spoke to my father and I said, you know, I think I'm going to finish early and I think I want to try and be an actor. And he said, I'll make a deal with you. I save money and you get to try and be an actor. I'll give you, when you graduate, I'll give you a thousand dollars a month for 12 months. And you know, he's saving like $20,000 me graduating early. So, so he got a really good deal. And, uh, and, um, so I did, I graduated and, uh, I spent very short time in New York. Uh, and then I came out to visit a friend in Los Angeles from college and I got a job and, uh, that thousand dollars a month back then, you know, this is the late 1930s. So, uh, Back then, a thousand dollars a month was great. I mean, I, I think my apartment was—I uh, split it with my roommate. My apartment was four ninety a month, and then I had, you know, my car expenses and and ramen noodles. You know, so a thousand dollars a month, I could I could live on. Um, by the time that year was up, I was making a living, and I would not have done that without my father's help. I mean, literally, if because if the world had told me you're not going to make a living at this, I would have I would have done something. Now, were you making a living as in commercials, or were you getting guest star spots? How were you making money? I didn't get commercials right away. That was a little tougher nut to crack, um, but I got episodes, a lot of episodes. And if you did, for example, at the time, I remember it exactly, uh, to guest star on a sitcom uh, was 1700 and something dollars. And if I could get one of those a month, I was King Farouk. I mean, I, I mean, that was like, and within that first year, I was now getting two or three a month. So, and then every once in a while, an hour long would sneak in, which is much more money, like at least double. Um, and so it was fine, but you have to remember, this is the eighties. Uh, and television was very different than it is now. Uh, every every television show had five or six guest stars every episode. If you watch an episode of television now, no one's speaking who's not a regular. And if you're lucky, there's one guest star and it's someone famous. It's me playing that part now, a part that I would never get back then. And so when I was when I was uh, came to L.A., I was doing uh, Cheers and Family Ties and, and uh, X-Files, you know, whatever, as big, fat guest stars that never would go to an unknown actor now. They would go to someone recognizable, someone famous would be playing that part. Why do you think that happened? You know, I was talking to, uh, actually, Gregory Harrison, I was talking to, and he said, nowadays it's so hard for actors because they want to pay everything scale, and yes. it's like, you know, a lot of actors who aren't already established they actually, it's almost like they have to have a hobby. It's like acting's a hobby because you're not making yes. a living. Why did that change? Was it just the greediness of, of the networks? Was it because there's so many stations? I mean, in your eyes, why do you think that changed? Well, just it's just financial. I mean, it's purely financial. Uh, the networks aren't making as much money. Um, the advertisers aren't paying as much money. And the, and the viewership is is so fractured um there's so many choices uh that the viewership is just down like way down so when i when i got to la you, you did an episode of of cheers or family ties or something 60 million people watch that and now if on a on a tv network show if six million people watch it watch an episode of television that's a that's a huge number now so that's reflected in the dollars that are spent on advertising and which are budgeted for the production. I, I, I did a show the last, last five or six years. Uh, I was on the show Hawaii Five-0, uh, which ran 10 seasons. And we go looking for a raise, you know, in season nine or season 10. And they're like, what are you talking? We don't have any money. 
we can barely bring you in to do a guest spot. Uh, because while we're in season eight, nine, ten, and it's been on for a long time, every year they're cutting our budget. Because all they're doing is making more episodes. It has no value. It's, it's just more. <laughs> so, so if you can't make it for a price, it's not even worth making it. Well, I know Hawaii Five-0 because my wife watches it. And whenever you're beyond, whenever a, a past Cooper talk guest is on TV, she goes, "Honey, honey, you know, Willie Garson's on TV." Or That's anyone. That's fantastic. And for, so you're and you're bored by it. <laughs> no, I love it. But for for you, when you shot Hawaii Five-0, how often did they fly you over? I mean, was it was it a one well, and done? Was it? It's a few? interesting because I saw I saw I saw it happen. Like my first couple seasons, I was doing four four or five episodes a season then all of a sudden i did two and then i think the last two or three seasons i did one episode per season just basically i i would joke with them basically just to remind the audience that the character is not dead so <laughs> so, so we we have to have him run past the lens just so they're so they're comfortable <laughs> Now, as an actor, what's it like shooting in Hawaii? I mean, it's got to be a little bit of paradise. It must be, you know, it's not like you're sitting there in, in Studio City at the at the yeah. lot, you know. It's like here, you're in Hawaii. You're near beautiful country. What's, I mean, is that, as an actor, is, is that a pay dirt gig? Is that just like, all right? Well, I mean, you know, every, every job is as good as its people. And uh, those are great people. And a lot of them are uh, local, which is great. And the whole Hawaiian vibe is like a real thing. Uh, they don't work. They're not working twenty-hour days, which I'm used to in New York. Um, and after work, you have the night, and it's beautiful out. And there's uh, beaches and tons of restaurants, and it's like it's just great. You know, it's a you're you're working someplace that's a vacation destination, which is kind of a lovely thing. Um, and then on your days off, you know, forget about it. It's like waterfalls and hiking and beaches you know it's like it's I, I much rather have a day off there than in uh you know dayton ohio you know so now in your early days of your career you said you were working a lot how often were you auditioning i mean were you were you booking a good constantly, percentage constantly, constantly there were so many auditions because there were again every show had so many guest spots so there you would audition uh usually Wednesdays was like the big day, um, and you'd go after work because uh, it's an early on sitcoms. It's an early run through on Wednesdays. You usually run throughs at like two o'clock, and then you're released at two thirty, three o'clock. So you run around town to auditions, and you audition until you get one, and then you stop. You stop the auditions. Like, oh, I'm not going to that one because uh, I got a job, and. Um, and then, and then you brought it up before. Then I started doing commercials, and I was a commercial king. And that was like commercials in the '80s and '90s was just literally a license to print money. It was unbelievable, um, and those were great. And I, I developed uh, my stable of directors. I had uh, four directors who I worked for all the time. So whatever commercial they were directing, if there was anything within reason of me playing, I would get the part. They would shove me down the, the, uh, the ad agency's uh, throat and I would get it. And I always delivered and I love the process of commercials. I love that uh, it's kind of it's storytelling in miniature. Uh, you, ha you literally have 30 seconds to tell a story. And these are not... You know, also commercials were different then. There were there was a story. Um, it wasn't just like buy this because you're bloated. It was a, uh, you know, it was uh, it was very specific. A, a guy's at a party. He drinks the coke. He meets the girl. You know, whatever it is, there's a story, and it's short, delightful. Um, and big directors. One one of my directors was David Fincher. Another director of mine was Michael Bay, and uh, I worked for them all the time. Uh, this guy, David Kellogg, a master of commercials, and Graham Henman. And uh, that kept me really busy until I was too recognizable, and it stopped. All of a sudden, it stopped. I've, I've heard that happens. It's so funny when you're, like, basically 
if they'll say we need a Willie Garson type, but we don't. They don't want um, you. It, it wasn't so much that Michael Michael Bay, who I went to college with as well, was directing one of the milk commercials, uh, Got Milk, and uh, I had I had been on uh, NYPD Blue for a couple of years, recurring, but my character was very popular on the show. And uh, I went to the, when you go to audition, your final audition for a commercial, you're in front of the camera and then there's a screen and behind the screen is where the client is sitting. The producers of the commercial, the advertising agency people. So you're not facing them. There's a screen blocking you and you're where the lights are in the camera. And I came in and I say hello to the camera guy. I know, the casting director. I say hello to Michael. And then I hear whispering from behind the screen, isn't that the creep from NYPD Blue? <laughs> and, and it was like, yeah, that guy is not selling milk. <laughs> like it was like it was like that was it. And and very shortly thereafter it became obvious that uh, I was getting, my face was getting well-known and I was not going to get these jobs. Now, and, it, and it happened. I didn't get, I didn't, I stopped doing commercials. Now, were people starting to recognize you when you were out? I mean, what is that? Do they, imagine, uh, do they and, recognize NYP, NYPD Blue was the first one where uh, it was so popular and had such rabid fans. And then I was also becoming, because of all the other episodes, I was becoming, oh, that guy that I've seen, I, Oh, I like that guy. No, no idea who I was, but I like that guy. Uh, he's going to be good in this. You know, Chris, uh, my my long suffering agent uh, for thirty five years now. She says that uh, no one flips channels, which is something we used to do. But no one flips channels and sees you on on television and says, "Oh, I hate that guy. I'm going to flip channels quickly and get off it." They're going to stick around for a second to see what it is, whatever. Um, so NYPD was definitely the first one that was like a blush of, oh, I, I really like that guy. I like that, not just that guy, but I like that character. I know that character. Uh, I can't wait to see what he does in this episode. Um, so that, that was pretty cool. I definitely noticed it right around then. Well, you said, you know, people wouldn't change a station when you're on, which I still change the station, but it's just different now. There's always like that last button. It's like, it's not the yeah. same thing. That takes me to the story I mentioned in the beginning about Alice Costello. And that is such a great story. Uh, Tell that story. Cause that's, that's what I just love that story. Well, we had, we had started, uh, so it's got, it had to have been 90, probably 97, maybe 97 or 98. Since we had started Sex in the City, which was a sensation, obviously. And uh, so I, I had a little bit of juice in that I could get uh, good tickets to things. So that was very important to me. That's really all, all the only things, the only reasons I ever wanted to be uh, a, a known actor was to get better tickets to concerts and make it easier to go to a concert and to be a uh, celebrity guest on game shows. These are the only reasons I wanted to be well known. Um, so I had really nice tickets to a U2 concert uh, here in LA. And I took the girl I was dating and uh, we're, we're in the VIP area. And I look over and I see Elvis Costello and his then wife, uh, Cot, uh, from the Pogues, by the way. And, um, and I'm like, oh my God, I, I can't like this is it, for me. It was like seeing, uh, you know, John Paul too. I, I mean, it was like this is a big deal. So I, she goes, oh, leave him alone. He's he's enjoying his show. Leave him alone. Like all right, whatever. So the concert goes by, and uh, the lights come up, and he's. I'm like he's he's signing autographs. People are coming up to him on the rail, and he's signing autographs. I'm like I, I can't. I have to. I just have to. So I walk over, I tap him on the shoulder, and I say, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm working on a television project, which was a TV pilot that I was making for NBC called Supergirl. 
and I said, uh, we've been talking, I've been talking to my producers, begging them to use a song of yours for the TV pilot. And he turns and he goes, oh my God, it's you. And I thought, that's hilarious. Did Jessica somehow go over and talk him into today? Like, I, I'm like, who set this up? Who set me up here? And I go, ha ha, that's hilarious. Uh, no, really. He goes, no, really. You don't understand. My wife and I are your biggest fans. I said, okay, calm yourself. He goes, you don't understand. We we know everything that you've ever been in. And he's he's he starts listing the most obscure episodes and like you know one one lines in movies. Uh, I mean, like they're crazed super fans, and they had picked me out like ten years before as an actor that they really liked, and they knew much like your wife, they knew everything that I had ever been. <laughs> and uh, so he said, he said, you going? Are you going backstage? I said, yeah. You know, backstage at a, at a YouTube concert is not like you hanging out with the band. It's in like a convention center and there's like dinner tables set up. The band isn't even there. And they give you some food and they play YouTube music on the speaker. That's that's the backstage. Anyway, so we go backstage and he and Cod have already commandeered a table. Like they're there already. They ran back there, commandeered a table for four people. And we sit and we talk for you know, three hours. And he says, uh, he, he gives me his number. He goes, call me tomorrow about the, uh, about the war, the NBC show. And, uh, I did. And he called Peter Roth, the, uh, head of Warner brothers television, who was producing the show. He gave them the song watching the detectives. Uh, they changed the name of the pilot to watching the detectives and the show still didn't get picked up. And every time I see Peter Roth, I'm like, is there anything else that I could do for you to not get picked up? Like, um, and anyway, Elvis and I have been uh, very dear friends ever since. I mean, what is that? It's uh, over 30 years now. <clears throat> so it's, it's been a ride. When did you become an Elvis Costello fan? Because I always years. say his first... Not 30 years, 20, 22 years. I'm not good with math. 22 years. When did you become a fan of his? I always say his first three albums is just unbelievable how amazing well, all they I mean, were. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm uh, 56. So in 1977, um, I was 13. So it's exactly at the age when you have an awareness of buying albums and becoming a music fan for real. Other than obviously Sesame Street Live, which I was a huge fan of. And the banana splits, of course. Um, <clears throat> and then you just have your brother's record collection. But in thir- when I was 13, and the first album came out, <clears throat> that was speaking to me. This was mine. This was my artist. And then luckily, because Elvis is so prolific, uh, there was basically an album a year as I was growing up. So every year is that album. Um, so he was the soundtrack of my life other than obviously Mr. Springsteen, which is, that's another thing. That's a whole different thing. Um, cause Springsteen in New Jersey, like it just, it's in the crib and it's part of your life. That's true about Springsteen. It's funny cause I got the chance to interview Nils Lofgren and he was calling me. A dear, a and, dear friend of mine. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm talking to some of the East Street band cause same thing. I'm from New Jersey. I'm the same age as you. It's okay, so I'll tell you a great story. I, don't, I haven't told this story a lot. I'll tell you this great story. So I vowed early on. When I was a kid, I used to, um, I used to work on the Jersey Shore in uh, Monmouth Beach, New Jersey. I worked at a place called the Channel Club, which was a large private yacht club, very wealthy, uh, very mobbed up, I would say, highly mobbed up. Um, and we would go. I was 15, 16. And we would work in the summers. And then after work, we would drive around Asbury Park looking for Bruce's car. And wherever it was parked on the sidewalk by the back entrance, that's where we knew he was. It was usually the Stone Pony, but it was many other clubs around Asbury. And we would go in and 
she uh, with our fake IDs because she only had to be 18 anyway and uh, we would go and watch Bruce Springsteen um, and he would play like midnight to 6 a.m. every night never his own songs with whatever junkie house band was there and sometimes he would even have sometimes Stevie would be with him or he Southside would come or whatever um, and uh I vowed to myself my whole life that I will never have a conversation with Bruce Springsteen. I have nothing to talk about with Bruce Springsteen. It's too much. It's almost, it's too holy or something. And there were times at the Stone Pony. Stone Pony in Asbury Park has two entrances to the bathroom. One is to the main room. One is to the green room. And I walked out of the bathroom. I was probably 16. I walked out the wrong door because I maybe had altered myself and there's an empty room and Bruce Springsteen is standing there holding a beer and I literally stood and stared at him for about 20 seconds he lifted his beer to me as a toast and I nodded and I turned around and walked away so as I got older and I go to every show and as I got older and I got on Sex in the City, and now Stevie was on Sopranos, and for HBO events, it was just us and them. It was really just Sex in the City and the Sopranos. So we became very close with those people. Uh, they became close with us. This was we were the we were the HBO family. We see them all the time at events, cocktail parties, press crap, uh, whatever. So. Stevie and I became very close. Now I'm now I'm not just going to the concerts. Now I'm going with Stevie's tickets, and I'm backstage, and I'm standing literally shoulder to shoulder with Bruce Springsteen many times, and completely ignoring him. I, I have nothing to say to Bruce Springsteen. So we go to a Elvis turns fifty years old, and he rents out a restaurant in L.A. with his now wife, Diana Crawl. And we go, we show up to the restaurant, the girl I was with at the time. We, we show up to the restaurant, and it's only 20 people. I thought it was a big party. for They bought the restaurant, but it's only for 20 people. So we position ourselves at the other table. So I don't have to deal with Bruce Springsteen <laughs> and Patty. I'm sitting there. So, so Elvis's table is Elvis, Diana. Uh, Patty and Bruce and uh, my my very good friends uh, Callie Curry, who's a writer, and her husband is T Bone Burnett, the famous music producer. So I'm very friendly with them. So we're we're going to leave, and I uh, they're sitting down. Callie and T Bone are sitting on one side, and Bruce and Patty are sitting on the other side. And I kiss uh, Callie. I lean over and I hug uh, I hug T Bone. And I just put my hand up in a gentle wave to Bruce and Patty. I don't say anything. And I turn to leave. And Patty goes, wait. And I turn around. And she goes, we're huge fans of yours. <laughs> and I say the greatest thing that could have possibly come to my mind. I say, if only I could say the same. And everyone bursts out laughing because who literally who meets Bruce Springsteen without like fawning all over him um, and knowing that he's wildly insecure. You even do it more probably. So anyway, uh, since then, uh, he, he, he'll email like he knows that I go to every show. So he'll say things to Stevie or to Elvis like, oh, I know Willie wants to hang out after the show. Like, <laughs> and he he often uh, knows where I am in the audience and at some point in the show will come over and give like a point for something like you bastard or and it's so it's fantastic so I have no relationship with him and yet a wonderful relationship don't you just you you're not ever going to say anything to him like that's like never what, what do we have to talk about really I mean honestly what, what do we have to oh man I saw you at the Capitol Theater and and, and you sang the river for the first time, man. It was the best. I mean, what, what do I have to say to him? <laughs> you know, Nebraska, man. Oh, it made me want to go to Nebraska. Like, I don't know. I just feel like it's it's all been said. I would love, listen, 
if he wanted to go fishing or something and invited me, that would be amazing. Like just to do something. Like I got to go to Home Depot. I'm looking for a new lawnmower. I would totally be down with that. <laughs> That'd be a story. Now, <laughs> Sex in the City, that, you know, that was such a huge hit. Was that a hard process to get on that show, or did you did you nail that audition early? And how did that change your life? Because you were a working actor, and people knew of your career, but that just is one of those shows that it's just such a mega hit and such a select following. Yeah, it was such a... I mean, it just became such a cultural uh, touchstone, uh, and we didn't know that that was the case. Um, it, was, it was pilot season, which is when we auditioned for all the possible new shows. Uh, so pilot season, like any other, and I was going out for a bunch. That's what used to be. That's how it used to be done. And I went, uh, and I, I, I did get it early on unbeknownst to me, but I went to the first audition and I just read it in a small room with Darren Starr. And I went to leave and he also stopped me. He stopped me at the door and he goes, Willie. And I turned and he goes, nice suit. And I thought, that's what that's the takeaway from my audition is I was wearing a nice suit. So I, I left and they made a test deal, which is the they negotiate your contract uh, for seven years if, God forbid, you get the job. So that's what they, they do that in advance of your final audition uh, so that you can't screw around if they really want you badly. They can, you can't come back and say, OK, well, I want a billion dollars an episode now. So they do that for all the shows before you go to your final audition. And there's usually three guys uh, for every role when you go to network the final audition. I was fortunate enough to go to network for another show the same day. So I had two shows that wanted me uh, out of you know the three guys that they were going to bring. And Sex and the City was in the morning. It was HBO, which I didn't know much about at the time. It was mostly boxing, and they had that football show with uh, with OJ Simpson. It, it wasn't you know HBO wasn't HBO yet at the time, and so it was a little less money. The other show was for Fox, and I didn't really get it when I read the script. I didn't get it. I was like, uh, uh, I mean, it's all right. I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see. I didn't see it. I never vision for it. Anyway. I went in the morning and I showed up to network and I'm the only person there for the role. That that's, it's not something that happens that often. Um, so I went to it. I thought it went great. I did it the same as I'd done it before. And then they called an hour later and said, uh, we'd like to hire him. We'd like, we'd like to pick up the option on his contract. And they said, well, we have to wait because his other test is at three o'clock. So I went to the other test and I got it. I got the other show. So now we had a decision to make. The other show was on Fox, which was cool then. It was cool to be on Fox. It was the hipper network. It was a little more money and it was a very strong second lead of the show. It wasn't an ensemble. Uh, so I took the other show and uh, Sex in the City called and said, well, listen, what if we just make, uh, for the pilot, let's just make Stanford, my character, let's just make him a guest star on the pilot. Can you do that? So I was, sure. So I did both. I did the pilot for the Fox show called Ask Harriet. And then I went to New York and did the pilot for Sex in the City. And then I came home. Uh, the other show got picked up and Sex and the City, nothing was going on because Sarah Jessica was on Broadway for a year. She had a year contract to be on Broadway. So they weren't even going to do anything with it for a year. Um, the other show got picked up. We shot 13 episodes. Uh, they aired three or four and then canceled it. And then we called Sex and the City and said, hey, maybe maybe we made a little mistake. Like, can we come back? <laughs> and they said, well, we've been retooling the show, which they did. If you see the pilot and the other episodes, it's completely different. Um, we retooled the show and we'd love to have him, 
but it's not a regular, it's a recurring character now. And I'm like, damn it, I really screwed that up. Um, but that said, uh, they were very generous and the character was very popular and they took great care of me uh, for years. You know, it was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was the best of all worlds because being a recurring character um, means that you're not tied to the show. You can work elsewhere contractually. You're allowed to work whenever you're not working. You can do anything you want. If you're a regular on the show, uh, you're tied to the show and you're not allowed to. You have to ask permission every time. Uh, there are some of the guys on the show insisted on signing regular contracts. And one actor in particular, uh, in a season of 18 episodes, he did three episodes. Now, he did get a check, but he sat in New York in an apartment, a town that he did not live in. He lived in Los Angeles. He sat there for, you know, six months, uh, not working and spending money left and right. And, uh, you know, so I, I ended up with a better deal being a recurring character. For me, it worked out good. Now, how did it affect your career? Because it was such a popular character and it was a gay man. How did it affect your your future? How did they sit there? Were you getting, hey, you know, Willie, you're perfect at that part. We want to give you this. And how do you break that mold when you go, I don't want to do that? Well, well you, you know, you really control that. I mean, certainly every script with a flamboyant homosexual character was on my desk. So you decide. I decided long ago, much like my deep relationship with Bruce Springsteen, I decided long ago as a character actor that I was really going to try my best to not play the same thing again. And... Uh, if I am going to play something again, there has to be a really strong reason to do it. Uh, that being exceptionally better writing or ju just everything better about it. And the, the thing about that was I was never going to get better writing than Sex and the City. And it was kind of the pinnacle of that. So it affected my career in that people knew me. The problem is, is yes, people want you to do that. So it, it definitely, it, it was, it took a little minute to, uh, to break the cycle of, well, where are the other parts? Where are the roles for me? Um, I was very concerned about getting another series because it had become such a juggernaut and was so iconic and no one had another series of, of anyone on the cast for a minute. Um, and it was David, it was David Milch, uh, my dear friend from uh, NYPD Blue, and he uh, was doing a new show for HBO uh, called John from Cincinnati. And he said, there's a part, I want you to play this part, a, a, a Jewish lawyer, so it's much closer to home for me. And he wrote it basically for me. And he, it was on HBO, so this ended up being a problem. So he went to HBO and said, and for this part, the guy's name was Meyer Dickstein, was the name of the character. He goes, and for Meyer Dickstein, uh, I'm going to use Willie Garson. And they said, um, unless he's wearing a fabulous suit and is lisping, <laughs> I don't want to see his face on our, on our network. And David Milch said, well then we've got a problem because if this is how it's going to go with this part, it's how it's going to go with a lot of parts because that's who I want for the show. That's who I wrote it for. And they let me do it. And it, it was like, it was a, such a, I can't tell you the level of relief. It was such a huge relief. Like, Oh, I can get another job. I can work again. And, uh, and it really, it gave me a lot of, um, confidence and, uh, that that was a it was a great thing and say you know and set me up for white collar and uh you know and hawaii Five O and now supergirl you know so it set me up to oh i can continue to work and i stanford does not last forever now the question though also you said you know you were getting offers a script coming on your desk because acting is it can be such a world of uncertainty was it hard even though you had your you know you were like I want to be the character actor. I want to do different things. Is it hard to turn down that guaranteed check? 
Because you know if they said, hey, Willie, here, be in this movie. Is that hard as an actor or is that just something that comes from your upbringing or just your passion it's, that says, I'm no, not going to it's, it's hard. I mean, it's upsetting. Like, you like, uh, at, at any moment, uh, your career, well, I mean, it sounds so ridiculous to say uh, in the current uh, environment, but uh, for actors, now, uh, all, all I can say is now the rest of you are experiencing it. But for actors, at any moment, your career is done. You just, you, you all of a sudden get stopped hired, stopped getting hired. And uh, and that's it. It's like, oh, that was great. Uh, we loved you, and now we don't, and it's over. Um, so it's it was hard, definitely, when you saw offers, and certainly there were advertisements and stuff. I mean, listen, people gave a lot of crap to, like, uh, you know, Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer played the same role for 20, 20, what is it, 25 seasons? You know, starting on Cheers and then spinning it off to, same, to another show, also wildly successful. It's the same guy. He's playing the same guy. You know, and uh, you can do that. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't fault him for it. If you're a star, if you're a TV star, uh, more of the, like the good looking variety, like the, you know, the A number one on the call sheet, uh, the anchor of the, you're, you're the Don Johnson of the show. Um, that's a different thing because he can play different characters. Um, but he's really playing Don Johnson. It doesn't really matter what it is. Um, you're, you're tuning in to see Don, what's Don Johnson doing today? Um, so character actors have it differently. You want to, you want to, uh, escape in the character. You want to become this person. Um, and if you have something wacky, like, like, Oh, he's flamboyant, gay, and like a hook, uh, then you can be really trap yourself. And, 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 you know, ride it for the rest of your career. I mean, I'm sure, no, I'm not saying that Paul Lind wanted to play a, a construction worker, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a bad example, but, but you know, I mean, the character actors always, the, the, the go-to for character actors is always like, are you, are you going to hire, if you're a producer, are you going to hire Gilligan to do anything other than be on a friggin' boat? Like, and he literally spent the rest of his life working at boat shows as Gilligan. Like, God bless him, because if that role was available and I was in Los Angeles in 1966, I probably would have been up for it and I would have gone after it just as hard as I went after anything else, you know? So. No, no, you know, you said, you know, you worked on HBO with Sex in the City and uh, Cincinnati. And it was such and great... another and another amazing, amazing pilot uh, for Christopher Guest. And it's the best pilot I ever made that didn't get picked up. Anyway, that was awesome for HBO. And there was another one for HBO. I was with HBO for 15 years. Basically. Well, how do you go from, you know, the writing is, is so sharp on HBO. And it's also a point where you can say whatever you want. Now, I know White Collar was on USA, but there is some restrictions. What's that like when you're used to sitting there and going, if I just flap off and say, fuck, they're not going to sit there and right. cut it? Right. Well, I, you know, I was, I was tentative about the whole USA thing uh, because of the USA of it. I didn't, I didn't know enough about that network. Uh, to me, I thought they showed wrestling. That's what I thought was on USA Network. Was, oh, that's the wrestling network for uh, WWE or whatever it is. Uh, they had one show that was successful called Burn Notice. Um, and I think they had Monk. Maybe they had Monk before us. So yeah. those, but it was like when you can name a whole network on one show. Uh, that, that, so I, I'd been with HBO for so long. And then I got the script for White Collar, and it was so elegant so elegant like these were amazing characters and it became very apparent even after reading the pilot it's like oh this isn't this isn't a procedural FBI show these people this is about people uh, living their lives and 
together and maybe solving crimes, but two minutes in, you're like, they could be solving the crime of the missing tape dispenser. It did, like, it didn't matter what they were working on because it was about the people. And that always is much more interesting to actors than anything else. So it was, so it, it laid my things. And, and then luckily the show became a, a really big hit for them, which is great. Now, what are some of the favorite movies you've worked on? You know, every, here's the thing. As a, as a character actor, every job is your favorite job while you're doing it. Um, in terms of experiences, I like to be on location uh, making a movie because that's just great. It's like the circus is in town. So we, come, we are the circus. We show up. We're, we play our little act. Everyone in town knows you're there. The restaurants, the new, the, you, know, you get to see new record stores, new restaurants, new uh, thrift clothing stores. Those are my record stores, thrift stores, and restaurants. It's all that matters on location, and uh, and and you and you become uh, you're, you're, it's like it's like uh, basic training. I mean, you you become bonded with these people for the rest of your life because uh, you're living together. It's not like shooting at home. Uh, you're literally living together 24/7, uh, every meal together, every night out together, uh, adventures nonstop. So I like that. In terms of the work, <clears throat> I like a little more freedom. Um, I do all I do all the Farrelly Brothers movies. That's great. It's like being with family, and you're all just trying to make the funny. Make the funnier you make it bigger chance it has of staying in the movie. That's, it's a very simple formula. Um, so I love that. I, I don't know. I mean, I love, I think of things based on location a lot. Um, and I've been in really, I've been in luckily been in some very good movies and it's so movies are great, uh, as a character actor, because you, you generally, you tag and you're out. Like you get to do your stuff. Sometimes it can be very difficult. I mean, a, a movie like, um, there's a movie I made called Speechless, which shot in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it was a large ensemble of people. And I wasn't very friendly with any of them. And uh, it was six months. And like no one was friends with each other other than drinking at night in the bar. So I would basically spent six months with a bunch of, uh, you know, high functioning alcoholics, uh, in a bar every night. And that, that can be a, a bit of a drag, uh, sometimes then you just want it to be over. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, like one, one of the worst movies I've been in is called out cold. It's a snowboarding epic. And, uh, it's one of the best experiences ever. Cause we had so much fun. Uh, Zach Galifianakis and I became like best friends. We had a wonderful time. And we're still friends to this day because of that movie. Uh, unfortunately, we had to go make the movie. But <laughs> <laughs> Now, at this point in your career and for the last few years, are you just basically getting offers or do you still have to go to the occasional audition? Um, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword because when you're not working, they say that the agent and manager say, well, we're trying to get you an offer. And then you never hear about it again. You're like, well, guess what? You didn't get me the offer. So why didn't I read? Just let me read. So now I'm on the other end of it. The other side of it now is basically begging people to let me read. Because if, like if you, if Steve Cooper is directing something and your wife uh, loves Sex in the City, you, you have a, a vision in your head of what I am. It's like, so they, all they hear, all they hear from casting or the producer is like, well, you know, what about Willie Garson? Which would you be willing to make an offer? And be like, oh, this character's not like that guy. So I'm now in the position where, yeah, I do get offers, thank God. But uh, I'm in the position now where I'm, I spend a lot of time like saying, just get me in the room. Let me get in. Let me go earn the part. Uh, which is much more satisfying because I'm not going to lie. I, I've had offers and gone and done jobs that I was not right for. And if I had auditioned 
I would not have gotten it. Now, um, now with the auditioning, do you prefer being in the room or everyone's doing, you know, on the tape now? Well, that's, that's the, first of all, if you're technologically challenged, like myself, it's a disaster, the self-taping. And also, I, I, I like to connect with the person. I like to be with the person. Someone, a friend told me yesterday they had an audition on Zoom with the director. That's ideal. And they record it. You know, like you can record a Zoom. And, uh, and, they, and so it's the same as having a self-tape, except it's not a self-tape. The casting director was also on the Zoom, reading opposite the actor. So it's like, well, I'm all for that. Let's do that all the time. Um, you can't do it if you're auditioning uh, episodic television. You know, if they have to see 50 people, that, that's a pain in the ass. Um, I mean, I guess you could do it. Like, your time is 12.55. My time is 1 o'clock. They, they, they could do that, right? Now, now, what's in your future? Any, any roles coming up that you've booked? I mean, you're not I working right I now. I don't but... know. I don't know. Like, none of us know. I mean, I hope to go back to uh, to Supergirl, but they're not back yet. They can't, uh, they can't shoot. Um, and... Obviously, we had there was no pilot season this year, so we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm going back to 25 words or less next week, um, and uh, I'm writing a book, and uh, that's it. We sit and we wait. Is, uh, is our, our our industry will come back uh, in fits and starts, and will never come back in real until there's a vaccine. So that that's just a simple thing. Now, what's your, is your book a, a biography or is it an autobiography? My, or is, book is, is, my book is my friend is an author and his publisher. They were talking, and no one has a longer IMDb uh, than I. That is still somewhat current and still working and somewhat relevant. So, and it goes through many different eras of entertainment, from literally studio system when I started uh, through the onset of cable and then streaming um, and the just the range of people and projects uh, and the amount of ground it covers so they got me to write the book it's it's ba- it's an easy book to write uh, it's uh, it's my IMDB starting with number one whatever I have to say and then go on to the next one some of them are one paragraph some of them are five pages, whatever needs to be said about. It. And it's not, I don't talk shit. That's not what the book is about. I hint at shit. Like if someone was horrible, uh, I don't, uh, but I'm not, but it's not there to like name names of like this person is awful or whatever. Um, and some of them, I, I'll be honest, this is a real character actor story. You do so many jobs and some of them are literally an afternoon. I just wrote an entry yesterday and it says, I'm sure that these people worked really hard and I'm sure it's wonderful. But if you put a gun to my head and put me in a straitjacket, I could not tell you what this is. I know nothing about this. Well, so. now is there, is there a projected date when this is going to come out or not? No, I mean, I'll tell you this. I'm on page 110 or something and I'm all the way up to 1998. <laughs> so I, I have to, uh, I, I have some work to do, <laughs> but the jobs, um, as, as you get better known, there's, there's less jobs that last longer. So the jobs get longer. So I'm at that time. I'm in that time in my career now where there's just like, I look at like 1996 and there's literally 50 entries <laughs> for 1996. And in, you know, in 2019, there's probably three. So, so it, it, it'll be, you know, it should move along better after a while. I want to thank you for coming on, Willie. I'm glad we got to do this. You you were such a good guest, and you just had such a great career. And uh, it's now, my pleasure always. Now you tweet. You're at Willie Garson for tweeting. Do you tw- are you tweeting a lot these days? Uh, you you setting me up, aren't you? No, I'm um, just wondering. Oh, I do I do tweet. I'm I'm a I'm a serial uh, 
political tweeter. I'm I'm bad. I'm bad, and I have to curb my my tweeting. So yes, I'm at I'm at Willie Garson, and on Instagram I'm at Willie.Garson. because someone owns at Willie Garson on Instagram and won't sell it to me. Jackasses. <laughs> anyway, people, so check out Willie. Go on his IMDb. He has tons of credits. Watch his shows. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Instagram at Cooper Talk One because someone has Cooper Talk. Um, sure my email is cooper at coopertalk.net website coopertalk.net where I have over 800 episodes so check it out so remember I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guest don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and I'll talk to you guys next time thank you